page 1037 in your pew Bible, beginning in Revelation 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, 
Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment. And say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of Articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour... All this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, 
For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the Word of God. Let's look into this text together. We're entering into the final turn before the home stretch in our study in Revelation. This morning we're engaging with the initiation of the final judgment of God on this world order before heading into the millennial kingdom and the final judgment of His image-bearing creatures and then the new heavens and the new earth. Once again, I believe we'll see some things here that, that help us a great deal to understand this world that we live in, this world that we even live in today, and it will help us to interpret what we're seeing happen in it progressively as we move through these days. Chapter 17 here opens with a vision of the great prostitute in verse 1, Babylon the Great, she's identified, verse 5, sitting on a scarlet beast, verse 3, and the rest of the chapter interprets these symbols that we meet early on in this chapter. Chapter 18 then is, is a lament, essentially, or a dirge, really, grieving the prostitute's death. So that, in short, is where these two chapters are headed. It was one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls back in chapter 16 who introduces this vision. We see that in verse 1. Later, the bride is also introduced by this angel, Revelation 19.9, which seems to underscore, by the way, contrast between these two women. As a matter of fact, some have said that Revelation could be titled A Tale of Two Cities, The Prostitute and the Bride, both interestingly revealed as cities. But we also need to remember that God's people were presented as a woman even back in chapter 12. So that's a theme that has recurred. Let's walk through this passage together in two parts. You see them listed in your bulletin there, so that'll be our outline. It just basically divides it, the chapter divide. 
That's a helpful place to see a break in this text. If there's a break at all, you've heard, though, from the reading, there really isn't much of a break. But we'll first see the vision and its interpretation of the religious and political ruin of Babylon in chapter 17, and then a lament of the commercial ruin of Babylon in chapter 18. As we progress, I'm going to give you a quick outline, though, of each of the chapters, because chapter 17 will divide easily into two parts. We've already seen that, the vision and the interpretation, but then chapter 18 into four smaller sections that we'll move through rather quickly. So first, we see the vision here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll move into the interpretation in verses 7 through 18 of this chapter before moving on into point two of this outline. Again, this is a lot of material, so let's just get started and walk through this and see what the Lord has for us today. So first, the vision, verses one through six, of the religious and political ruin of Babylon. Several questions fill our minds as we read that title, not least being who or what is Babylon? Are we talking about the ancient city? What are we talking about? Let's move through it and see what we learn here. First of all, this image of the prostitute. Throughout Scripture, the prostitute is used as an image in God's Word of of, of foolishness, of folly, of of cunning, of unfaithfulness, of, of danger, and much more than that. We remember that as our we are progressing through Proverbs 1 through 9. We saw the adulteress there, the evil woman that ensnares. That's one of the places, one of the many, where the image shows up. But it's also been used to describe cities and peoples at different times in God's Word. Jerusalem in Ezekiel 16, Nineveh in Nahum 3, Tyre in Isaiah 23. And Isaiah 23 stands behind this chapter in some detail, along with Isaiah 51 and other texts that we'll mention as we move through this material. Here, in this chapter, in this section, the prostitute turns out most specifically in terms of a city to be Rome, citadel of pagan opposition to the cause of Christ, and in principle, every opponent of similar ilk, wrote D.A. Carson, or actually spoke D.A. Carson. It was uh, a lecture that I'm quoting from him there. And that's precisely because of her connection with the beast that she rides. So the Roman Empire in John's day is the focal point. But that's not the only manifestation of Babylon throughout history. Her sitting on many waters here initially creates an image of of broadness or worldwide religious system that's that's pictured as a prostitute. Throughout the Old Testament, sexual immorality is used as a metaphor for the unfaithfulness of God's people. They are to be in what is termed a, a marriage covenant with God, both Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Church. We're the bride of Christ. And idolatry, worshiping others, giving to others the allegiance and the love and the devotion that belongs to the spouse is sexual immorality. And so there's a close link between sexual immorality and idolatry in the Scriptures, and the one is a metaphor for the other. But when we first see this show up, we see the broadness of worldwide religious systems that are opposed to God being pictured 
as prostitution or embodied as the prostitute. It's later argued that, uh, that uh, or augmented to this view of the uh, sitting on the many waters down in verse 15. It's broadened to see that it also means peoples and multitudes and nations and, and languages whom Babylon, this prostitute, leads astray. But those two images are resonant with one another, the broadness of religious deception and deceit. The mention of the kings of the earth here in verse 2 shows the religion politics link in chapter 17. The overall sense is that anyone religiously or politically aligned with Babylon against the cause of Christ is intrinsically evil. That's what's being revealed in these two chapters. Anyone religiously or politically aligned with Babylon against the cause of Christ is intrinsically evil. Conversely, we might say that Babylon demands the allegiance that's due to God alone. And in so doing, that's religious prostitution. To quote D.A. Carson once again, that means that here Babylon functions as a type of the ultimate malevolence. It functions as a type of antichrist. It functions as a type of Satan himself. Her blasphemies are an overt affirmation of self-deification. Babylon is the world system that believes herself to be God, the supplier of all things, the protector of all things. Babylon is referred to about 300 times in Scripture. It is occasionally viewed as a satanic religious program that opposes the true worship of God. So in that sense, it's metaphorical. But primarily, it's viewed as a political power in a very literal sense with a, with a great city bearing the name of Babylon as its capital. Here in Revelation, Revelation brings those two themes together. It brings together the two major lines of truth about Babylon that appear in Scripture, and it points to God's final judgment of her. Both the city of Babylon, as has been promised, and the metaphor, the idea of Babylon, the collection of all that is Babylon-like into the systems and progressive dynasties of this world that set themselves up in opposition to God. So it's more metaphor than material city, but it really is both at the same time, Babylon. That Babylon, the prostitute, is sitting on a scarlet beast just means in effect, and I bet you could get this one yourself by this point, at least I hope so, as apocalyptic becomes more familiar in your ear. What does it mean that Babylon is sitting on the back of a scarlet beast? It means in effect that Satan is underneath all of this because we learned back in chapters 12 and 13 that the dragon, Satan, entrusts his power to the beast, which is the Antichrist, the, the, the world leader that that seeks to set himself up or set up the dragon, really, as that which is to be worshipped in the place of God. So the fact that Babylon is sitting on a scarlet beast that comes back to us here means that, in effect, Satan is underneath all of this evil. That the prostitute is drunk with the blood of the saints, verse 6, 
means that she is responsible for the death of God's people. Babylon kills Christians because they're true to him and not to her. That's the bottom line. When John saw her here in verse 6, he says that he marveled greatly. Perhaps he was shocked at how bad Babylon really is before God. Because this is, in chapter 17 and 18, after all, God's view of Babylon expressed through human eyes and observation. That's a good way to understand 17 and 18. We get God's view of Babylon through the eyes of human beings that are participating in and around her. So that's the vision itself. Let's move into the interpretation in verses 7 through 18. We commented on this section quite a bit when we were covering or preaching on chapter 13. That's because that's where the beast first appears. And here in chapter 17, we get a lot more understanding of the beast. That's why we looked ahead at the time, if you remember. So we've already covered some of this material to some degree. But the mystery here, verse 7, about this woman and this beast is revealed. We noted back then that the beast was and is not and is about to arise that that is a sort of parody of the Lamb who was and who is and who is to come. So the beast is presented in a similar way. He's he's an opponent of God that has been defeated in the past but shows up again in the present. And because there are seven heads, that can happen. It's not as though the beast is one entity. We've seen there are many antichrists. John said that explicitly in 1 John 2. We've drawn attention to that text on several occasions. It's as though each of these heads is a different manifestation through history. One of them has a mortal wound. I think that was the one that was present in the garden as Jesus went to the cross and defeated the enemy of all times. But this opposition is going to come back again in the end. And it's presented here as a parody of the Lamb himself. Satanically inspired power that is once defeated, then returns to war against God again. And that is precisely what causes, verse 8, the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world to marvel at the beast Because it was defeated and was not, but now is returning. This astounds them, this marvels them, and it it proves to them that the beast really is worthy of their worship. It's what makes them vulnerable to the beast's deception. Now, as we've said in John's specific context, the major opposition to the church in his day was certainly connected with the Roman Empire. This is the primary basis for seeing the Roman Empire in these images here. Again, in John's day, when we ask the question, what did this mean to the seven churches who originally received this letter, that is almost certainly what they were going to be thinking of. This is Rome, standing in opposition to the church. But that's not the only manifestation of opposition to the church that appears throughout the history of redemption, Old or New Testament. 
So it's recognizing who was the opposition to the church in the day that this letter was first delivered. Plus, it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream from Daniel chapter 2. Where the final kingdom includes ten toes of iron and clay that are represented as kings. Just as here. But we also see that, verse 9, the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And we pointed out before that Rome is known as the city of seven hills. But that's not the only meaning here. In the very next verse, we're getting another meaning for these seven heads. Verse 10, they are also seven kings. Not the ten kings, that's a different group. Seven kings this time, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other is yet to come. Here's another one of those passages that you could spend the rest of your life studying and not know who these seven kings are. There's all kinds of effort in figuring out how five have come, one is, and then one is left to come. It, that's hard work. We could spend some time on it and get some ideas. I don't think it's going to be that helpful. I think there's other things that are beneficial to look at in this text. It's not unimportant. It's God's Word. But I think we would do better to move past that and just let the rest of the, the uh, content of this chapter fold in around it and fill in some gaps for us. For instance, we know from Daniel's vision that four beasts, of the four beasts there in Daniel 7, that identifying these as kings could actually mean kingdoms, just as it does there. So we don't go outside the Scripture to see that context set, understanding kings as kingdoms. And it seems quite possible that this is what John means here, succession of kingdoms. The great prostitute sits upon a succession of empires, is what it looks like. She found her embodiment in historical Babylon in the first century, Rome, and at the end of the age, eschatological Babylon, end times Babylon, that's representative of all of that. Will there be another city of Babylon like this? Very well could be, but it's not the main point here. The main point is this opposition to God shows up whether that city is physically present or not because what happened in Babylon is not unique. This may well be what John intended in speaking about the mystery of this woman in verse 7. So writes George Lant. The beast itself is part of this succession, verse 11. And now come the ten kings. There will be ten kings that are of one mind with the beast, verse 13. Again, recalling Daniel 7, ten horns, ten kings, and three displaced by an additional one that we tied together with the beast, that one horn that displaces three. You see how much time we could spend on just unpacking some of these details and seeing where they go. We make mention of them because it's helpful to have here. But again, let's move on to get a sense of what we're actually being taught in Revelation 17 and 18. The beast is part of the succession and there will be ten kings that are of one mind with the beast. That means fully supportive of the beast, having one aim together with the beast. And that one aim together is expressed as verse 14 opens. They will make war on the Lamb. We heard about that war at the end of chapter 16. They gathered at a place called Armageddon. But I'll tell you what, no time is wasted 
on that battle in this chapter. We can read a little bit more of that later in this book, but here, look at this, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. <laughs> That's it. It's, it's, it's a done deal. That's why we're not spending a lot of, taking a lot of time on this. The text doesn't take a lot of time on this at this point. The Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him, that's the more important thing here. Who's with the Lamb, not who's with the beast? Those that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Do you recognize your name in the text? Bottom line, this isn't even a fight here even though it's the ultimate final battle that's being talked about. As with Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, God sovereignly locks in the beast and these kings to the aims that are within their own hearts. Do you hear that? God sovereignly locks in the beast and these kings with the aims that are already present within their hearts. We see that in, in Exodus when the statement is made that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We've read about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart all along. It's not that Pharaoh suddenly wanted to turn and, and acknowledge the God of Israel. He was locked in, and God just said, very well, we're going to see where this goes. That's exactly what he does here with, these, with the beast and these kings. We see that spelled out in beautifully deep and rich, not just biblical and exegetical, but theologically rich language in verses 16 and 17. It's almost as though 16 and 17 are reading as commentary on what we've already read in 14 because they give so much insight into what's going on. So don't miss it when it's right on the page. Verse 16, the ten horns that you saw they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make war with her, desolate and naked, and make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. You think as you read through this that that fire is going to come from God. It says here that it's coming from Satan himself. It's, it's, it's just this internal struggle happens between these cooperative agents in opposition to God. Verse 17 continues, and here's where it gets rich. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind, and now speaking of the ten kings, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Our God is sovereign over all things, seen and unseen. He's not threatened in any way by any one of them. Here, the epitome of godless opposition. And God is just saying, go ahead. You're going to fulfill my purpose in the end, and you cannot do otherwise. This isn't God unfairly locking in his opponents to their godless views. This is just God saying, go right ahead. Go right ahead. And we'll see where this ends. Let's move on into section two. The lament 
the commercial ruin of Babylon. And here we see four sections, as I told you. Again, I'm not going to make a whole lot out of them, but it'll, it's helpful as an ideological progression to jot these down if you are the one, if one that takes notes. First, judgment pronounced in verses 1 through 3. Second, separation commanded in verses 4 through 8. Third, lament expressed in verses 9 through 19. And finally, rejoicing commanded in 20 to 24. So judgment pronounced in 1 through 3, separation commanded 4 through 8, Lament expressed, 9 to 19, and rejoicing commanded, 20 to 24. Look at verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and I love this, and the earth was made bright with his glory. This isn't God yet. This is still just another messenger angel. The earth is made bright with the glory of this angel. What is the glory of God like? The one who's seated on the throne. And this angel called out with a mighty voice, quoting Isaiah 21, verse 9, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, bird, and detestable beast. This echoes the language from the prophecies of the ruin of not just Babylon, but Edom and Nineveh, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 19, Isaiah Isaiah 34, uh, Jeremiah 50, 51, Zephaniah 2, other passages. Verse 3, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So they've gratified themselves in the defiling allurements that she offers. Continuing verse 3, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. They've engaged with her to establish and secure their own prominence. Still in verse 3, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. They've, they've cashed in on the profitable enticements that she offers to all comers, duping them like the seductress of Proverbs 1 through 9. But now, this angel is announcing Babylon's judgment. Fallen is Babylon the great. There's the judgment pronounced. Separation commanded. Verse 4, then John heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Come out of her. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This language is from Isaiah 52, verse 11. But it sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 6 to us. We're, we're a little more used to the pages of the New Testament, perhaps. And Isaiah, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 6 draws on Isaiah 52 as well. See if you don't recognize this from 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's the one we recognize, and that's exactly what God's people are hearing here in Revelation 18, verse 4. 
They're hearing, don't get caught up in Babylon's sins because she will surely be judged. She is surely being judged as this chapter progresses. Then this angel, or possibly another, turns to address God himself or his ministers of judgment in verses 6 and 7. But I personally believe that this angel begins to address God there in verse 6. That difference is seen by the content of what is being stated. And it sounds like a command, but as Greg Beale has identified, it's an imperative of entreaty, pleading with God, do this, finally, pour out this judgment. Seeking Babylon's judgment, asking the Lord to, verse 6, repay her double for her deeds, to, to mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. To grasp the earlier part of that verse from the New English Bible, pay her back in her own coin. It's what's being pleaded to God here. And a double portion here is familiar Old Testament imagery. Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 16. It means punishment in full measure. It doesn't mean get back and get even. Do or double. It really just means pay back in full measure. Don't miss anything in the judgment of Babylon. That's what's being called for by the people of God. So as they are being called out of Babylon, their response is, God, pour out judgment. It's time. You've been patient. Lament expressed, verses 9 to 19. This comes the lament of Babylon. It's not sorrowful so much as it's an affirmation that she's getting what she deserves. The kings and merchants are lamenting, but this telling is from heaven's perspective. So the reader really, through heaven's view of Babylon being communicated through the eyes and mouths of the world, the reader is being warned where opposing God leads to in the end. So we've just heard, come out of her. Don't get caught up in what's going on in Babylon. Recognize where this is going, and now the judgment is being lamented as it's being observed. But also look at what they're lamenting. I drew it out just verbally as I was reading the text, but grieving the loss of so many things, just beginning in verse 13 in the middle of the list, cinnamon, spice, and all such things, cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls, worded differently in different translations, but unmistakably human trafficking. It's being characteristic of Babylon. The bodies and souls of men, that's how the NIV translates it. Babylon doesn't value human life. Babylon doesn't believe in the sanctity of human life. From beginning to end, I was just reading an article this morning, 21,000 people have died at the hands of an assisting physician in Canada at this point. And that's just been a few years since their laws changed. Babylon doesn't value life. Babylon doesn't understand life. Babylon believes that all happens 
for personal gratification. And I believe that if you press hard on every ideological battle that we face in our world today, behind it is a demand for freedom of personal expression and self-gratification. Not speaking against the implications of the First Amendment. I'm actually recognizing that in evil days, the First Amendment gets turned on its head and begins working in reverse. And we see that in our day. Babylon doesn't value life. Her judgment then will be swift. Did you catch that? In a single day, verse 8, in a single hour, verse 10, verse 17, verse 19. Her judgment will be swift and rightly so. Her sin is utterly despicable. It's the antithesis of understanding the image of God in creatures, fallen though they are. Rejoicing commanded, verses 20 to 24, as the commerce of Babylon falls, it's interesting to note that the arts fall along with it. In verse 22, so does all else of joy and true merit in society. The fivefold no more, in verses 21 to 23, drives this home with clarity. But even so, heaven and earth will rejoice. In fact, they're commanded to rejoice, verse 20. At the demise of godless religion and rule and riches, God's people are not just called upon to rejoice, but they delight to rejoice at the fall of Babylon in every form that she has assumed throughout world history. For she's been incessantly cruel to the people of God all along. Verse 24, verse, chapter 17, verse 6. So this is no accidental occurrence as it's happening. The judgment of Babylon, it's been promised throughout Scripture. Consider God's word from the prophet Habakkuk regarding future judgment of Babylon. We read it a bit earlier. Strangely, that wasn't planned. We didn't pick Habakkuk 2 because I'm going to refer to it in the sermon. It's just part of our reading progression this morning. It happens to come out as one of these passages that makes clear in really vivid terms that the judgment of Babylon is coming. It's the first couple of verses that Todd read this morning. Read here from the NIV. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. This means it's widely understood. Write it down. It's going to happen. And let it be spread because anybody who reads it needs to know it. It's going to be equally true for them all. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. That which is written here is awaiting God's timing. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. Don't you love that? It will not delay. It's waiting until the very last days. As Revelation 17 and 18 make abundantly clear. The final thing that we read about 
before the return of Christ reappears in 19, having first been introduced in chapter 11, the progression of all things that are going on throughout this time period, the last thing to be mentioned is the judgment of Babylon and the fulfillment of the promise expressed through Habakkuk the prophet thousands of years earlier. We don't even know how many thousands of years earlier once this final outpouring of judgment on Babylon is expressed. I don't understand how anybody can think that Scripture is written by human authors alone. I don't understand that. Those kinds of ideas that tie off with such beautiful and unmistakable and unswerving clarity just confirm the Word of God from internal witness. The prophet Habakkuk, so many hundreds of years before Jesus, talking like this, and now the Apostle John writing these words to affirm the truth of it. So, there's the context of the passage. What does this mean for us today? I find three words of encouragement here that I'd like to share with you and share with you just briefly. Three words of encouragement that come to us from Revelation 17 and 18. And each of these, brief as they are, will appear on the screen, God willing, <laughs> as I mention them. First of all, the mark of the Lamb opens our eyes to the ways of the beast. The mark of the Lamb opens our eyes to the ways of the beast. The people of God, walking with God, walking by the Spirit, who is that deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Our word of assurance this morning was from Ephesians chapter 1, where that appears. We didn't plan that one either. This is just God putting His Word in front of us. It's where we receive that seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Receiving that opens our eyes to the deceptions of the beast in any generation of the church in which God has appointed us to live. That opposition will be present and growing in every one of those generations, and God's people will be drawing from the truths of His Word to be strengthened in the midst of it all along, right up until the end. The mark of the beast opens our eyes, I'm sorry, the mark of the Lamb opens our eyes to the ways of the beast. We see that clearly in chapter 17, verse 8. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. And the implication, those whose names have been written in that book will not marvel. John marveled to see the evil of Babylon, but he wasn't drawn in by her deceptions. The fact that their names have not been written in that book and they've not received the mark of the Lamb, that's what enables them to be vulnerable to the deceptions of the beast. But this, the mark of the Lamb opens our eyes to the ways of the, be the beast, that's our inheritance. That's the inheritance of those who are called and chosen and faithful. Second, the Lamb will conquer the beast and all those who are with it. The Lamb will conquer the beast and all those who are with it. Those with the Lamb are known as called and chosen and faithful. 1714. These folks, us, the church, 
stand in contrast to the beast with its followers and aids, the prostitutes, the ten kings, the dragon, the false prophet, and all who marvel. Those who follow the Lamb are in no danger from this motley crew. As we said earlier, just more spontaneously than part of this message, they may take our lives in this world. And for some, if they don't have an understanding that to live is Christ and to die is gain, might think that's loss. But it's not. It's not. To live is Christ and to die really is gain. We don't pursue it, but we don't shrink from it in fear. And we don't need to worry about whether God is going to be faithful to His children when that hour approaches. He will enable, just as He has said. Those who follow the Lamb are in no danger from those who follow the beast. They may take our lives in this world, but that just advances us to the next, where such rebellion against the one true God will be no more. Three, what we learn here helps us worship, obey, and endure in our day. What we learn here helps us to worship, obey, and endure in our day. In other words, it helps us to hear revelation and act on it in the way that it was written to be acted upon. Worship, obey, endure. It clues us in to the course that evil can take in this world. And helps us not to be so unsettled by it when it does take that course. It helps us to see that sin really does make people stupid. Just as Proverbs 12 and Psalm 92 make clear, among other places. Using that very same word. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 12 verse 1. The stupid man cannot know that though the wicked sprout like grass, they are doomed to destruction forever. Psalm 92, verses 6 and 7. We know that pursuing our own will in this world where God exists and holds us accountable leads us to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Pursuing our own will in this world where God exists is the very thing that renders us susceptible to exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, just as Paul described in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. But it can still surprise us when we actually see this happen. It can surprise us when we see people exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It, 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 it's bizarre. We don't think it should be possible, and yet it happens right in front of our eyes. My friends, our world is filled with it these days. It can be hard for us to believe that people today really think that human gender is anchored to psychology more than to biology. But that is the belief of this age, even among many medical professionals. It's bizarre. It's unthinkable. We can't imagine it when we see it. 
But Revelation 18 is preparing us for that. It's describing the very reversal of values. In fact, it caves in on itself, these ideas. It can be so hard for us to believe that people today really think that love and marriage should be redefined so that self-expression and self-gratification take precedence over human propagation and social enculturation. It can be hard to believe that we think marriage should be redefined for personal expression and gratification. And yet, that's what this world believes. That's what the church should expect. And yelling at it red-faced and getting angry and gossiping about it behind closed doors isn't helpful. What does this move the people of God to do? With broken heart, proclaim the gospel with all the more clarity and intensity to model it as something that is truly true. That's the calling of the church. This world doesn't need to hear our ire and anger. It needs to hear the truth of the gospel lovingly proclaimed in ears that desperately need to hear to be freed from this sort of bondage. Today's passage tells us that that this is precisely the sort of reversal of values that we can expect to see as Babylon ripens for judgment. This is what we should expect to see. These are precisely the sorts of lies for which people will gladly exchange the truth of God. And it's not going to be social action that frees them from it. It's not going to be the political voting booth that frees them from it. It's going to be the gospel that has a hope of changing the destiny of the rebellious in our day. Even if their gratification leads to destruction, they will continue to pursue it to the point that society as a whole will buy into it, will buy into their self-destructive lie and call it moral enlightenment. We'll call it moral awakening. Or it's shorthand these days, woke. This is exactly what we should expect to see as the opposition to the truth continues to mount as the progression of the gospel continues to go forth. It's exactly what we should expect to see. The question is, is the church ready for it? Evil turns in on itself without even noticing. So, long before this world faces God's eternal judgment, its fallen human appetite for gratification will lead it into self-destruction in one generation after another until the end. And we don't even know how many more cycles like this might be left. 
This might be just entry-level exchanging of the truth of God for a lie. Is the church ready, strapped in, to continue being the messengers of the kingdom of God in the midst of this? There's our calling. There's our calling. God's called and chosen and faithful ones are delivered from all of this by His sovereign and gracious salvation. And the judgment that the church triumphant, the saints under the altar back in chapter 6, have been longing for throughout is finally delivered here. The voice from heaven in 18.4 proclaims, Rejoice! over Babylon, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets. That's actually verse 20. For God has given judgment for you against her, the vindication not just of Christ but of His church. God says that this judgment is for us against this world. We don't have to express it ourselves in our day. This is still the day to proclaim the gospel. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Your charge is still clear. Jesus gave it before he left the earth. This, this is the God that we worship and serve. Amazing. Amen? Let's pray together and then let's remember the death of Christ in communion. Heavenly Father, what glorious text of scripture this is. Challenging as it is to handle it in one day, it, it loses its steam if we don't move from the beginning to the end. So I pray that you would help us, Father, refresh us through the truths of your word, heavy and hard though they are in so many ways, and yet clear and helpful, clarifying for us in our day to help us recognize what we're facing and why and what our response is to it as children of the living God, the called and faithful ones. Help us to be true to that description from your word, Lord God. And it's the work of your spirit through your word alone that can do that in us. We yield ourselves to those works. In Jesus' name, amen.